I actually wanted to start uh, in the first service. I really, this was kind of fun because all, all our elementary kids were in the first service this morning, so got to connect. But was, I want to start off uh, thinking about a Disney movie. I'm a parent. I have two kids, nine and seven. And so I've seen my share of Pixar and Disney movies. And I've actually listened to them more than I've even watched them. Uh, we go on road trips and, and our, you know, the secret, you get a little DVD player in the back seat and, and they watch a movie and, and, uh, and they're occupied and they don't hit each other and stuff like that. Uh, well, sometimes, you know, we took a trip all the way back to Kentucky a few years ago, a road trip, and uh, there were certain movies we listened to about a dozen times uh, over the course of that trip. And... Uh, Listening to the dialogue of some of these movies, I realized that kids' movies can sometimes have really profound uh, statements or really profound points or questions. And Finding Nemo was on my mind as I was thinking about uh, Easter Sunday. You'll see why here. Let me uh, find my notes. Um, oh, by the way, I see Larry back here with Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. I want you to have a Bible. Even if you have one at home and you just didn't have it here this morning, I'd love for you to be able to look at what we're looking at. Anybody? Yeah. Anyone else? Great. All right. So finding Nemo. Let me let me let me tell you what I mean. If, remind you of the story. It's a clownfish named Marlin. At the beginning of the movie, tragic thing happens. He, his wife gets eaten by a moray eel, and he has to raise his son all by himself. And shortly thereafter, his son, uh, doing what his son shouldn't do, gets caught by tropical fish collectors and, and they speed off in a boat. And the rest of the movie is Marlin on this adventure across the Atlantic Ocean to go and rescue his son, to find his son, Nemo, and bring him home. And he's accompanied by this blue tang named Dory, and you, most of you all know the story. And she has perpetual short-term memory loss and, and uh, she can't remember what they just did. And, and so they go off on this adventure and near the end of the movie, there's this pivotal scene. They've been through all these different near-death experiences, and they finally think that they're there. This is where they're going to find Nemo, and they get swallowed by a blue whale. Remember that? Yow, swallows them up, and they're in the mouth, sloshing around. And that's the point where Marlon's character, he just taps out. He utter despair. He's just floating in the water, and he's like, this is, I'm never going to find He just gives up, right? He's just in despair, and meanwhile, Dory's swimming around with the current going, wee, wee. You remember the scene? Let me give you a visual. And then it gets worse. And then the tongue starts angling back and all the water's rushing down into the whale's stomach. And they're hanging on to these giant taste buds, I guess. And, and uh, there's these ominous whale noises. And Dory says, I think he wants us to let go. And he says, of course he wants us to let go. He's eating us, right? And then there's, here's the dialogue, and this is profound. Dory says, it's time to let go. Everything's going to be all right. And Marlon says, how do you know? This, right here, that's what he's saying. How do you know something bad is not going to happen? As he looks down the black hole of this whale's throat, certain death, that's a really valid question, right? Do you remember what Dory says? I don't, with this like blank look and this smile. Okay, who's more in touch with reality in this scene? Marlon is, but the movie sort of sets you up to kind of cheer for Dory like, oh, come on, Marlon. I mean, get over it, right? Just don't be such a worrier and a helicopter parent. Just let go, right? And sort of, you know, clap like Dory's the wise one, but Marlon is the one who makes sense, right? His wife's been eaten. 
He's almost been eaten by an anglerfish, a great white shark, almost blown up by an underwater landmine, uh, almost stung to death by jellyfish, and now they're about to get swallowed by a whale. The only reason that she can say, let's go, is because she has perpetual short-term amnesia. She lives in this blissful ignorance of everything's gonna work out fine because she can't remember how close she's come many, many times to everything not working out fine. And this dialogue came to my mind thinking about Easter because Marlon's question is a very serious question that every worldview must answer. And the question is this, facing certain death, which we are all gonna face, nobody has beaten death short of Jesus and we're gonna get there. How do we know nothing bad's gonna happen? Can we know that there is a happy ending to death? And if so, how? How can we know that? And the answer to the how question is not Dory. That's not a Christian worldview. That's not faith is saying, I don't, let go. Just fall into the big giant black pit and cross your fingers and hope to die and everything's gonna work out fine. Some will say that's the Christian faith. Some Christians will even say that's what I mean by faith. But the Christian faith is not hope for the best. It's faith, but it's actually anchored in something tangible, concrete, historical, events, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's faith, but it's in faith and faith in something that has been seen and that we can look back and see. Uh, my son Levi, lately, uh, when he's trying to figure out if we're watching something and it's fiction or fact, you know, like a TV show and it's like, is this special effects? I mean, because, you know, it's hard to tell these days, right? This is the way he gets it. He goes, Dad, did that happen on the earth? <laughs> Like we were watching a car chase live in Mike's Burgers a couple months ago, you know, as we're eating dinner, and we're watching, you know, the helicopters fall, and the car line goes, Dad, is that happening on the earth? I'm like, yeah, buddy, that's happening on the earth. That's actually happening like 20 minutes away, right, in, in L.A. What he means is, did that actually happen, or is it fiction? Is it just a story, a made-up story? And the Christian faith is anchored in, in things that we believe actually happened on the earth, in someone that happened on the earth, in Jesus who lived on the earth, in fact, we read it earlier, Jesse read it, but Paul hangs everything on this claim that there was a Jewish man named Jesus who died and was buried and came back to life. In fact, Paul says, he puts it all in this basket. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. What we are doing is a waste of time. Paul says, not just that we're wasting our time now, but the kind of life that you should live if this is true is a waste of time. He says, we should be pitied over all men. Living your life for these claims, if they are not true, is pitiable, Paul says. The Christian faith is not just a, a nice way to order your life that whether or not these things actually happened doesn't matter. Paul would say no. If they didn't happen, then we're fools. We're lying about God or whoever God is, and, and, and we are to be pitied above all men. So this morning, I want to clearly lay out what it is about this Jesus that we believe and that our faith is grounded in and gives us an answer to the question, is there a happy ending to death, and how can I know that? The Bible grounds it all in Jesus. Turn to Acts 2. As you're turning there, Acts 2, 
No shame in looking at the table of contents, by the way, at the beginning of your Bible if you're looking for it. But it's in the New Testament after four gospel accounts of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Then it's the book of Acts. This is kind of the part two of the gospels. And in this scene in Acts 2, here's the setting. Um, Jesus has risen. He's appeared, like Paul says, visibly to over 500 people uh, over a course of about 40 days. And he has been teaching his disciples and followers. And then he ascends visibly at the beginning of Acts chapter 1, ascends into heaven bodily and says, I'm going to come again. But he says to his disciples before he ascends, he says, I want you to wait. I want you to wait here. Something is about to happen. Acts 1.8 says, uh, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit's come on you and you're going to be my witnesses. You are going to bear witness to me and my life and my death and my resurrection. You are going to bear witness about that. So wait until this happens, right? So they don't know what it's going to look like, but they're gathered and they're waiting and they're praying, the 12 and others. And all of a sudden one day it happens. As they're praying, some unusual things happen. It says the place where they were praying shook so there was an earthquake of some sort. Obviously, it was, a, it was big enough that it drew a crowd, as we're going to see. And the 12 disciples, at least, it says something unusual happened where it was like tongues of fire, Luke uh, records. He says it was visibly, there was these tongues of fire that came to rest on each of these 12 disciples, and they began speaking in languages that they had never learned or studied. Not gibberish, but actual known languages, because all of a sudden a crowd begins to gather because of the noise and whatever. Maybe they burst out of the house, and they're praising God and saying, it's finally happened. And this crowd of Jews from Jerusalem who speak all these languages begin hearing, he's speaking my language. That guy's speaking my language. And it says a huge multitude gathers and Peter stands up with the 11 and he preaches and he addresses them to explain what's going on. And that's where we're going to look here. Acts 2, Peter's sermon. This is just the highlights. I'm sure he said more than this, but this is what Luke wants us to, to get. Acts 2, 22 through 41. Let me read parts of this and we'll dive in. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And jump down to 32. He, he basically cites Psalm 16 and says, God had said this was going to happen, that he was going to raise him up. And then he gets back to the point, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. We've all seen this. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So this spectacle right now is all because of this Jesus that you're, <coughs> that you're seeing this happen right now. And look at verse 36. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, pause. We'll get to their response in a minute. But six truths about Jesus that our faith hangs on. He keeps using this phrase, this Jesus, this particular Jesus that actually lived on the earth, right? He wants us to understand what it is about this Jesus that our faith hangs on. And the first thing is this, that this Jesus is a man. 
He was a man. He is a man. Verse 22, he begins by saying, Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man. He's from Nazareth. That means he has a hometown. He's from somewhere. He's from somewhere where he's known. People grew up with him. He was fully human. He wasn't just a ghost. He wasn't just a, you know, apparently a person. He actually was. He was born. He was carried to full term in a womb by Mary. She gave birth. He traveled down a birth canal and had to have his umbilical cord cut and tied. And he was bathed by Mary and nursed by Mary and rocked to sleep and comforted when he cried by Mary. And he was raised in a poor and humble home of a carpenter. The Bible says he grew. He grew in wisdom and stature. That means he got taller. He went from being baby fat to scrawny, you know, elementary sized kid to putting on muscles like his full grown man body. He went from, you know, prepubescent like little boy voice to getting his voice lowered and dropping as a man and, and having a man voice, right? I mean, th- Jesus was a human in every way. He got hungry and thirsty and tired, and I'm sure he got sick. Everyone probably got sick back then. He ate food and he drank wine. And he worked hard for most of his life that's not recorded in the Gospels before his short three years of ministry. Probably the, the earlier life, he just worked hard with his hands. He probably had good calluses on his hands like Gerald. <laughs> not little wimpy calluses on his fingertips like me and Jesse <laughs> from the guitar. He worked with his hands like Jesus. He worked. He had brothers and sisters. He was so completely human that when in his ministry, when he gets back to Nazareth, which we saw a few weeks ago in the Gospel of Mark, by and large, nobody believes in in the claims that he's making, the authority he seems to be saying he has to be anything more than a man. He comes preaching and and, and calling people to repent and, and offering to heal and cast out demons. And by and large, no one takes him up on it. And it says Jesus marvels at their unbelief. And their unbelief seems to be because he's so human, right? They're just like, wait, we know this guy. We know his sisters. We know his brother. We watched him grow up. I remember his little boy voice, right? And they just don't, they don't believe because he was a man. And this is important because our main problem is sin. The reason why the world is broken and why we're broken And Paul says that all creation is in bondage to decay. The Bible says is because in the beginning, God created man and we sinned against him. Adam and Eve distrusted God, doubted his goodness, doubted his word that he would carry it out. And they stepped over a good boundary he had set in place. They sinned against God. They failed to treat God as if he really were holy, omnipotent, sovereign, and an authority over them. They said no. And God said, in the day you do that, you will die. Death enters in. Difficulty enters in. There's a curse that enters in that we're all under. And ever since then, every one of us in the heart, we may evidence it different ways. We may act out in different ways. I might be tempted in different ways than you are. But every single one of us from the heart is inclined from birth to distrust God and and rebel and want to do our own thing and, and, and live our own way and not treat God as holy. And God is holy and he's just. 
And so if there is ever going to be a, a happy ending to death, then our sin's going to need to be paid for. And if you pay for it, then there's not going to be a happy ending to death. <laughs> that will be the end. So the, the plan, God's plan, has to involve someone else, a substitute. And if there's one thing over and over through the history of Israel, God was teaching the people is you need a substitute. Sin requires blood. It requires death. And so he gives them this sacrificial system. And so these spotless animals, goats and bulls and, and lambs at different times would be offered up by a priest on behalf of the sins of people making it very clear. They'd lay their hand on the head and they'd kill the animals. The blood poured out. The priest would speak the sins that were being confessed over this animal and, and announce forgiveness to the person for the blood of the animal. But we get to the New Testament and Hebrews says, it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That would have been like a treadmill that would never stop unless God's plan involved a man. Because bloods, or bulls and goats didn't sin, people sinned. So we need a people, a person, to be sacrificed. We need the blood of man. So Hebrews 2 says, that's why Jesus was made lower than the angels, human. He humbled himself so that he might taste death for everyone and bring many sons to glory. He couldn't do that unless he was a man. But because he's a man, he can. So Hebrews 2.17 says, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect to make propitiation for the sins of the people. God could punish sin and be satisfied and be both just God and the justifier, the gracious forgiver of sin, if a man will die. So Jesus became a man. So Peter says, first of all, this Jesus is a man, Jesus of Nazareth. But he's no mere man. He's not less than a man, but he's more than a man. Look at the rest of verse 22. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. Underline that word attested if you are okay writing your Bible, which I am, I recommend. Attested. He was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. Attested means proven. Uh, or certified as authentic, endorsed. So God attested to something about this man, Jesus, through mighty works and wonders and signs, and not just a few of them, but lots. It's not like he came down and did a couple of really impressive things, and then we're just supposed to believe him based on that. Everywhere Jesus went during his ministry, the miraculous was exploding, right? I mean, he was just healing. We, you know, he turned water into wine and healed an official son of illness on his deathbed and drove out demon from a man in a synagogue and a crazy demon-possessed man running around the tombs. And at the end, the man's sitting at Jesus' feet in his right mind saying, I want to follow you. And he provides a miraculous catch of fish in a moment to these tired fishermen who had been out all night and caught nothing. And he healed fever and leprosy and paralysis and deformities and blindness and deafness. He commanded a storm to stop and it did. He walked on water. He raised at least three people from the dead that the gospels record maybe more. And the list goes on and on. And we even get these summary statements like this in the gospel of Mark. Wherever he came, in villages, city, countryside, they laid the sick in marketplaces and implored him they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were healed or were made well. As many as touched it. How many do you think there? Thousands? 
town to town to town to town to town. It just keeps happening again. As many as touched it were thousands of healings, thousands of deliverance from oppression and evil spirits. And John concludes his gospel as if that wasn't a big enough statement. He says, now there were also many other things Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. God attested that this man was not a mere man. So, okay, then what was God attesting about Jesus? What way was he not just a mere man? Well, it's that he's God, right? Everywhere Jesus goes, he speaks with a kind of authority that people say, who talks like this? Only God talks like this. People carry in their friend on a, on a stretcher, four of them, and Jesus looks at him and says, uh, your sins are forgiven. He says, you, you guys don't believe I can forgive sins? Okay, well, stand up and walk out of here with your stretcher, Right? And he connects the dots. He says, these signs attest to something that when I say your sins are forgiven, I can do that. God attested that this was not just a mere man. This was the God man. God has become a man and he's done it in your midst, Peter says. I love this. Here's this crowd and he's saying people in this crowd we're not reliant upon secondhand information. He says, as was done in your midst, as you yourselves know. Maybe not every single person, but saying, you know someone who saw some of these things happen. These things happen in your towns. They happen in your midst, Peter says. And no one cries out, didn't happen. <laughs> They're all, they just keep listening to Peter. The assumption is you're, he's right. All these things had happened in their midst. And Peter says they attest to something. They attest that God says this man is not just a man, but he's God. God has come down. He's taken on flesh. So this Jesus is a man, but not just a man. Number three, this Jesus was crucified and killed. Verse 23 says this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Not just killed, but crucified and killed. So not just bullet in the head, but long, drawn-out, torturous, shameful, public <laughs> death. Hung, stripped, nailed at the wrists and feet to bleed and suffocate slowly, painfully, publicly, all the while you know, mocking and insults are being hurled at him. We read through this from Matthew's gospel on Friday night. Even the, 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 the criminals who deserve to be punished are, are, are joining in this, right? He was crucified and killed. And two things about what Peter says that, that are, are both true. It happened at the hands of lawless men, but Jesus was delivered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This Jesus who walked on water and at his baptism, heaven, God from heaven announced, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, hung and died on the cross. Why would God let that happen? And Peter says it's because that was his plan. It was according to his, his, determined, uh, and, uh, his determined plan and foreknowledge, his appointed plan. So Jesus was actually delivered up by God as an offering, as a sacrifice, even though he was killed by lawless men. Isaiah 53 is a chapter in the Old Testament where the prophet Isaiah, God has him speak about one day there will be this servant I'm going to raise up who's going to suffer. 
He's talking about the Christ. He's talking about Jesus. Now we look back and we go, this is Jesus he's talking about. Listen to Isaiah 53, how these two things are woven together. Uh, Killed by lawless men, but according to the definite plan of God. Look at verse three. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and, and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows. See, there's a substitution happening here. There's a standing in our sorrows, our griefs. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Everyone watching thought, boy, God must really hate him. Right? That's what he's saying, right? We esteemed him stricken by God. Meanwhile, what's happening? The chastisement that brings us peace is happening to him. And with his stripes, we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And meanwhile, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted and he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter, like a sheep. Before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living and stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he'd done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Again, there's the no mere man part, right? He was innocent. He had not sinned. And here's the key, verse 10. And yet... It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. This was the will of the Lord. God offered up his son to do this willingly. He delivered him up as the sacrifice. Like Abraham back in Genesis offering his son Isaac saying, I don't know what you're doing, God, but I'm going to trust you. God offers up his own son. And instead of sparing him at the last minute, like Abraham's son Isaac, Jesus dies. And this is God's plan. And the son was willing. He was in on it, right? We read on Friday night, I lay down my life and I'll take it up again. I must go to Jerusalem, Jesus says. This is the grace of God. This is the picture of the God. I mean, I think that there are some who, who, who don't believe, the God that they don't believe in is not this God. Not understanding the grace of God who's, who is able to provide the very sacrifice he demands and he becomes it himself. We're going to sing at the end of this service. I can't wait. These lines, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. And there in the ground, his body lay. Light of the world. By darkness slain. Killed by the hands of lawless men. And yet, this is God's gracious plan. And the very next lines of the hymn are then bursting forth in glorious day. Up from the grave, he rose again. Number four, this Jesus was raised from the dead by God. Look at verse 24. Again, that's not it, Lord. 
says God raised him up. Sorry. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Although Jesus could die because he was a man, he couldn't stay dead. That's what Peter's saying. Jesus couldn't stay dead. He could die, but he couldn't stay dead. And he uses a graphic image. He says when God raised him up, what God was doing, he was loosing the pangs of death. This word pangs means birth pains. Every time it's used in the New Testament, it means birth pains. It's labor pains. And so here's the analogy Peter's making. In the same way that a woman, once labor pains start, ain't holding that baby back in, right? It might be an hour, might be five minutes, might be you know, 12 hours, but baby's coming out. Peter says, God loosed the birth pains of death. Death went into labor pains when Jesus was in the grave. Couldn't hold him. Not possible. We left off at the Good Friday reading. The Pharisees are worried. They think, oh, the disciples are going to break in and steal the body and then lie and say we were right. And so he said, Pilate says, go ahead, make it as secure as you want. And they did. And they kept all the disciples out, but they couldn't keep Jesus in, Right? That was the point. They, death couldn't keep him. And here's the question. Why couldn't Jesus stay dead? Why was it not possible? Well, it's because death had no authority over Jesus. God would not be just to leave Jesus in the grave. Why? Because Jesus had never sinned. The sting of sin is death. Sorry, the sting of, yeah, is that right? So the sting of death is sin. What makes death so scary is our sin. But Jesus had no sin. So therefore, death had no authority over him. The clearest that Jesus ever said it before he died was in John 10, 17. Look at this again. He says, I lay my life down and I may take it up again. I may, I have the authority. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And here's this, I have authority to take it up again. Death can't hold me, has no authority over me. This charge I've received from my father, I love this. John Piper tried to boil that down and says, this is the point. Jesus can break out because he wasn't forced in. <laughs> no one can keep him down because no one ever knocked him out. He lay down when he was ready. Death didn't have authority because Jesus had no sin. Death has authority over every one of us because we have sin. It would be just for God to leave us in the grave. But because Jesus uh, rose, now we have hope. Grave had no claim on him. Peter repeats it again, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up. And he adds, and of that we're all witnesses. So not only did you all, he's saying, not you, but all the crowd, he's saying, you saw all these works and wonders and signs and stuff. But he also says, this Jesus was resurrected as you yourselves know. Of that we're all witnesses. And no one says didn't happen. And because Jesus has defeated death, number five, Peter says, this Jesus is now both Lord and Christ. Look at verse 36. This struck me even this morning in the first service. This is the same Peter who on Friday night was freaking out when a servant girl recognized him as being with Jesus. And he said, I don't know the man. Listen to the way he's talking right now to this crowd. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, 
this Jesus whom you crucified. That's a terrifying statement. This man, Jesus, who you killed, you crucified, he didn't stay dead. He's alive. He's alive right now. And you know what? He's not just Christ, Messiah. He's Lord. He's sovereign Lord who beat the grave. You don't think they were terrified? Look at verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's probably an understatement. As it sunk in, Jesus is saying, God's saying, I sent you Messiah. And you tortured him to death and killed him like a common criminal. He's alive now. I kept thinking of Inigo Montoya and the Princess Bride when he finally gets the six-fingered man and the swords out of his hand and he says his line, you know, I'm Inigo Montoya, you kill my father, prepare to die, right? I mean, that's the moment. Like, I'm alive and I'm right here. And, and here's this moment. They realized the, 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 the Messiah we killed, that we crucified is alive and he's Lord. What is the risen Lord that we crucified about to say to us? And Peter says this, here's what you do, prepare to die. No, he says, <laughs> repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, um, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the gift of God's presence dwelling with you personally. You crucified him. Repent and be baptized. He'll forgive, and he wants to dwell with you still. He is willing to dwell with you still. The last thing about this Jesus in Peter's sermon is this. This Jesus forgives. This Jesus who is both Lord and Christ, who was killed by lawless men, who God raised from the dead, he forgives. He forgives those who crucified him. Can you conceive of a more uh, unforgivable sounding sin than you crucified the Lord of glory? <laughs> I mean, honestly, that's got to be at the top of the list, right? God finally sends his son and you crucified him. And Peter says that can be forgiven. So, I mean, what about us? What's on our list? What's your long list of all the ways that you failed to give glory to God? Treat him as he, as he deserves, as holy and, and sovereign and gracious and trustworthy and true. All of our list, Jesus will forgive that. That's why he died. That was God's plan. That was his definite plan. So, as we finish I want to go back to Marlon's question, right? He asked, in the face of certain death, how can I know nothing bad will happen to me? What is the Christian answer to that? The gospel answer is this. How can you know? Belong to Christ. Belong to Christ. Look back up at verse 24. That phrase, it was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. As surely as it's not possible for Christ to be held by death, it is not possible for any who belong to Christ to be held by death. That statement is true of you if you belong to Christ. Again, we're going to sing this line at the end of In Christ Alone. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse, which is death, has lost its grip on me. There's that language, right, of grip, hold. It's lost its grip on me. Why? Well, I'm his. And he's mine. I'm bought with the precious blood of Christ. Death has lost its grip on me because it never had a grip on Jesus and Jesus has a grip on me. That's what Peter is saying can be true. He 
the book of Hebrews makes it clear when Jesus um, broke out of the grave, it's like he blew the door off the hinges, right? So that it, it, it would remain open, right? When he died, the veil in the temple tore in two from top to bottom. And Hebrews says that was a picture of something that actually happened not on this earth, in heaven, in the presence of God. That thing, that barrier that keeps us separated from God, deserving of the grave, has been torn down. And Jesus has blazed up a pathway that people can follow. We can follow. The grave has an exit door. I want to finish just with Jesus' words as an invitation to you here. In John 11... He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And then he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I think what he's saying is, if you're alive when Jesus comes back, you're never gonna die. So if you die, yet though you die, you will live. And if you believe in me and I come back, you're never gonna experience that. And then his next words to Martha, I want to leave for you. Do you believe this? He says to Martha, do you believe this? Do you? Our faith isn't like Dory. I don't know. Just hope for the best. It's in this, Jesus. Do you believe in him? That he was a a man, but not a mere man. That God became a man. And that he, he endured much hostility for sinners to save you, a sinner. And that he's alive, which proves his payment was accepted by God and can count for you. And I even wonder, we've been praying, our elders again prayed this morning before, in the wee hours before our services started, that, that, that some of you here even this morning would have the same experience of cut to the heart, this, this sense of, I realize that before God, I have no, no leg to stand on apart from this Jesus. And I want to invite you to trust in him. So I want to pray and close. And if that is you, if, if, as you're sitting here and you're thinking about this, you're, to some degree you're having the same response of going, I'm responsible in part for the Lord of glory needing to die. My sin required that. And, and you're sorrowful for that and, and you want God to forgive for that. I would, I would ask you to pray in your own heart, but along these lines, if this expresses how you feel, all you need to do is turn to God and say, God, forgive me. I am a sinner. I do deserve death. I'm aware. Thank you, Jesus, for taking my place. Thank you for being alive and forgiving. God, not on my account, but on Jesus' account, I yield myself to you. Forgive my sins in Jesus' name, please. Spirit, come into my life. Dwell with me. God says he will. This promise isn't just for them, but for all those far off who will hear, and that's us. God, we thank you for for this great story that I never get tired of hearing and and we never uh, grow uh, grow out of. We need this as much today as we did last Easter. We thank you that we follow a risen Lord. We thank you that you're going to return one day and every eye will see you and that when our eyes see you, it will not be with fear, but with joyful welcome and eager anticipation. Pray that we live in light of this. God, I pray for what Paul said, that, that, that our lives would be such that if it weren't true, 
It would have been a waste. Help us to, to steward our lives in such a way that, that makes sense of this great message. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.